Please remain standing for the reading of the word. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit and the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far abundantly, more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I have to say, today is, uh, is actually a, a special Sunday for me for, for two reasons. The, the first reason is that today actually marks my 20th anniversary uh, as a pastor here at Valley Center Community Church. It was 20 years ago today that I started the ministry. Thank you. And uh, it's really, as I've had time to just reflect uh, upon that, um, I just wanted to first and foremost say to all of you just how overwhelmingly blessed I have been and my family has been by your love and your care as a church. You know, when I talk to people outside of our church and, and they ask me, you know, how are things going? Tell us uh, about the church. The one thing I always tell them when I talk about my time here is how faithfully over those 20 years I have seen this church family and the members of this church family serve and love Jesus Christ. And that has been a consistent theme throughout my 20 years here. And, uh, and that just is, I mean, what a thing that I have the opportunity to report. The second thing that I always say is that God has blessed us in those 20 years with just a tremendous amount of unity. I mean, listen, I have a lot of friends in ministry all around the country and around the world, and often I'll hear from them about divisions and conflict and bickering that has existed in their churches. And that has not been something that has marked Valley Star Community Church in the 20 years that, that I've been here. And that's just been such a, a beautiful thing. And that's all of God's grace. Amen? That is God's grace at, at work. But, but, you know, in that time, there have been a couple of things that I've learned that God has shown me in serving in the church being in one place for 20 years, um, there, are some, there are just some like really brief lessons, some things that I want to share that I hope would just like encourage your own heart. And the first one that is this, I've learned that faithfulness to Christ and his word, it triumphs fads. Faithfulness to Christ and his word, it, it triumphs fads. And what I mean by that is when you see a people like I've seen here who have been faithful to look to Christ and, and to his word, it will triumph the, the, the things that are spoken about how the church needs to do this and the church needs to do that. Um, when Paul came and he preached to the church in Corinth, he said, I came to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And, and that is the thing that I believe changes and transforms life. It's, it's the gospel. I've also learned that because church is a family, like a normal family, you go through seasons 
When you're in a place for 20 years, you see uh, seasons of change. You know, the human body, it grows and then it rests. It grows and then it rests. In companies, even the most successful companies in the world, take a Google, Apple, you know, Amazon, whoever it is, you see these companies and they talk about, oh, they've grown, they've grown, they just keep growing, they keep growing. But you know, every major corporation also has layoffs. And there's, there's times where you read in the news where a company like Apple, it grows and grows and grows, but then, it, then it, there's, there's times where it has to, oh, we have to settle down for a season. We got to lay off people. We got we to do those things. I share that with you because like what I've seen in the life of the church is the way that God works in a church is there'll be seasons where a church grows and sometimes there's a season where it rests. And if you don't know that, you can often mistake what God is doing in any one given season in the church. Instead of just being patient and being faithful to what God has done, you can look to change course and do things when God's just like, hey, no, I just have you in a season of rest right, right now. And so we as a staff, we often like, we've learned you don't panic. God is on his throne. God is in control. And I've just seen him do that over so many years. I've also learned that Christ can radically change and transform lives, that, that when he makes you a new creation, he makes you a new creation. I thank you for the testimonies you've shared with me over the years of what God has done in you. And sometimes I know that can be embarrassing to share the, your faults and your sins and, and those kind of things. But every time I hear that, what I hear is how God's grace enters lives and changes it. So um, I love you, church family. Somebody asked me recently, they said, where do you see yourself in, in seven years? And I said, well, I can answer that question. I said, I can tell you where I see myself, not just in seven years, but, but in 20 years. My prayer is that by God's grace, my family and I would still be a part of Valley Center Community Church, loving the Lord in whatever capacity that he would have us because we're just so grateful for this body, so grateful for what uh, God is doing. So, so I love you, church. Thank you for that. And uh, thank you for your support of, of us. Now, I told you there were two reasons why today was special for me. One was that it's 20 years, but the second reason is that I did not plan this, okay? I'm telling you right now, I did not plan this. But as I was going over the preaching calendar and, and the passage that we we're going to be in, I noticed something. The passage that we're going to be looking at today, in fact, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. The passage that we're looking at today, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, just happens to be the very first passage that I ever preached at Valley Center Community Church. <laughs> And, and, I, and I looked at it, and I looked at when it fell, and I, and I couldn't believe it. But, but here's why this passage is so meaningful to me. You see, I was interning at the church at that time. So this was before I came on staff. So this was 22 years ago that I preached this passage. And my wife and I were dating at the time. She had never heard me preach before. And, and so, so let me just tell you why this is... I came and I was preaching, and as I was preparing for that message that day, I thought, I'm dating this girl, and I had already bought the ring that I was going to use to propose to her, and I'm thinking as I was preparing to preach that day, what if she doesn't like my preaching? <laughs> I mean, I'm going to ask her to marry me, and what if she doesn't like my preaching? She's like, I got to live with this guy, I got to hear him the rest of my life. Well, we've been married 20 years. So there you go. So God was, God was, God was kind. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach a sermon that I preached 22 years ago. You know, I'm just going to use my notes. No, I've, I've learned and I've grown in, in that, in that period of time. But, uh, but as we come to this passage of God's word, we've been going through the book of Ephesians church and where we find ourselves starting in verse 14 is really a transitional point in the entire book of Ephesians. And here's why. The book of Ephesians can be broken up into two different portions. The first three chapters, one through three, are the Apostle Paul communicating to a church that he had shepherded and pastored for almost three years about the glories of 
God and what he has done in your and my individual salvation, but also how God has worked to bring us together and to create this new thing called the church. Paul has been laying out in, in chapters one through three, this great theology of our faith, how we have come to be the people of God, what it looks like from our perspective and what it looks like from God's perspective. When you get into chapter 4, as we're going to next week, chapters 4 through 6, Paul takes a turn. And what he does is he says, now because you know these things, because you have experienced God's grace, because he has transformed your lives, now we're going to talk about what a new people look like and how we live in the world as the people of God. If you've experienced what I've told you in chapters 1 through 3, this is how you now live. But when you come to the end of chapter 3, as we have it today, what Paul does is he communicates to them that based upon everything that he has just spoken about them and what God has done, he now says, I want to share with you a prayer, a prayer that I pray for you. And so we're going to look in detail at that prayer. And it starts right here in verse 14. Look at it. He says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Before Paul gets into his prayer, and he's going to do this three more times in these verses, he's going to make a declaration. In fact, the, the, the prayer that Paul prays is going to have declarations, pronouncements, if you will, and then requests of God based upon those declarations. And the first declaration that he makes is this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, right off the bat, as Paul introduces that he's going to be praying, notice the posture of his prayer. How does he say that he, he comes before the Father, church? What's he doing? He bows his knees. Now, this, this was a it was an uncommon way to refer to, to praying if you were a Jew. Jews, and you even see it today, when they pray, they typically stand when they pray. Have you seen like the, the wailing wall in Jerusalem? They come to the wall and they stand and they pray. That's their normal posture in prayer. But it wasn't uncommon for Jews to, to bow their knees. But when you did that, you were trying to communicate something. In, in him saying that, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, Paul is saying, I'm taking this posture before God on your behalf of, of humility, of adoration and worship. In Psalm 95, there's this very famous psalm. You've probably heard this. Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and what? Bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So it wasn't uncommon for a Jew to bow their knees in prayer, but praying in this way was a display of submission and humility. And we know why Paul is taking this posture of prayer because verse 15 says this, in reference to God the Father, he says of him, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Here Paul is making a declaration about God the Father that you and I cannot miss. You see, this might seem like an odd thing to draw attention to. Out of all the things to say about God the Father, he picks this phrase, that God the Father is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What he is referring to here is God the Father's absolute supremacy and authority over all things. Naming equals authority over. And so when he talks about 
bowing before God the Father. He says, I'm bowing before him because he has all the authority, all the power, the naming of the families in heaven and earth, everyone who's ever lived, died, or is going to, not just on earth, but in heaven, literally in the spiritual realms. Paul is saying, this God that I pray to is the one with all the authority. We already know that naming of things talks about authority and power. When you discover an animal, you discover a planet, the person, the scientist who discovers it gets to do what? They get to, they get to name it. But they have to name it within a, within a certain um, spectrum and category. They can't just name it whatever they want. But here's the thing with God. He didn't just discover us. He made us. He created us. So the God that Paul is praying to, God the Father, is the one with all the authority. In fact, this is the first declaration that he is making. The first declaration, as you're taking notes, is this. The God we pray to has all power and authority. Amen? This is who we lift our voices to. This is who Paul gets on his knees before. In fact, this idea of power and authority, do you remember when Adam was in the garden? Do you remember the responsibility that God gave Adam in the garden? He gave him the responsibility to what? Name all the animals. Why? Because he said of Adam, you're going to be my vice regent. You're going to be the one who's going to represent me and my authority in the world. But now Paul says, let's remind ourselves when we come to pray who we are praying to. So now we come to it. What is it that Paul prays? Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The thing that Paul prays for right here is that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the very first thing that he's asking is that you and I, that believers, would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. He wants us to receive from the Spirit strength and power. Notice, church, he does not pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon Christians. Do you see that? Make note of this. He does not pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon Christians because to be in Christ is to be, as we saw already, sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit already resides in every single person who is saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So he's not praying for the Holy Spirit to come upon Christians. He's, he's praying for the Holy Spirit who already resides within us to do this work of strengthening us, empowering us. And that's the first part of this request. He's praying, God, empower believers through the Holy Spirit. But that's just the first part of the request because what does he want to empower us through the Holy Spirit to do? Well, notice first that he says that he empowers us through the Holy Spirit according to the riches of his glory. Paul has gone out of his way to talk about the magnificence and sufficiency of all that God is in what he can do in your life and my life, how the riches of Christ are unsearchable. So when Paul is praying and making a request of God, he knows, 
church, he knows that he can ask God to do this thing because what he's asking God to do is an overflow of the riches that God has. God does not lack the resources through the Holy Spirit to do the very thing that Paul is asking him to do. Praise God for that, amen? Like we're gonna see just a little bit later on like how sufficient God is, but listen, he knows the riches of God. He knows his immeasurable power and he's saying, I believe that I can ask this of God because of who he is and what he has. So Paul, what is it that you want the Holy Spirit to strengthen us to do? This is kind of remarkable, church. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's asking that the Spirit might strengthen believers so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now again, let's be really clear. This is just like with the Holy Spirit. What Paul is asking God the Father to do here through the Holy Spirit in us, we can only understand this if we understand two words. What does it mean to dwell and what is this thing that he calls our hearts. Because aren't we united with Christ already, church? What does it mean for Christ to dwell in your heart? I thought Christ dwelt in my heart. Are you saying, Paul, that for some Christians, they cannot be united with Christ? Christ cannot be in them just as the Holy Spirit? We know the Holy Spirit is in us, but what about Christ? What's he talking about here? Well, this is where words matter. That first word that we're looking at here is the word that he asked Christ to dwell in our hearts. You see, Paul could have used two different words in order to describe this idea of dwelling. One word that could have been used in the Greek was a word that refers to like take up residence like somebody going and staying at a hotel. When we talk about Christ dwelling in our hearts, Paul could use the word that says, you know, I want Christ to take a stopover in your heart. He's not going to really set up camp or anything like that. Might not even unpack his bags, but he's just going to be there for a little bit. No, instead, he uses another word for dwell. And that word for dwell, when he says, I pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts, is the word that was used in the Greek to refer to someone who took up permanent residency. Somebody who came in and spread out. (laughs) Who moved in and took over the home. This isn't just like a guest room. To say that he is praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts is, is the idea that he would take up residency where the entirety of the place where he dwells, Christ's influence is felt. It's always interesting to watch a couple when they first get married, bring their two different styles into a relationship. And what happens to their home over time, I don't know about you, but I've seen this. Unless your styles match up, one style eventually wins over the next. And, and, it, and one of the spouses might live in the home, but the other one resides in the home. You know what I'm talking about? All right? Well, Paul is saying, he's like, I want to see Christ come into your lives in such a way that, like, it's obvious he's here. And it's that second word when it says to dwell in your hearts that's so important because the place where he's looking to to take up residence is in our hearts. Heart here refers to where our mind, our will, and our emotions are directed. 
The place where he wants Christ to take up residence is the place where your mind, your thoughts, your will, your emotion, it's where those things are directed. You know, I, I preach from, I keep my notes up here in an iPad. And the interesting thing about an iPad is that every iPad, every computer has an operating system. There are lots of apps on this iPad that I can utilize but I can only utilize those apps because there is an operating system that connects those apps and allows them to run on this iPad. Are you tracking with me? Your heart is like the operating system of your life. It's the place that, that enacts all the apps, all the actions, all the functions, all the thoughts, all the desires. And so when Paul says, I'm praying that you would be strengthened that you would be empowered by the Holy Spirit, that Christ would reside in your hearts, that, that the Spirit would enable you to die in your life to all of those places where Christ isn't at the center, that you would be able to do a sweep of your heart to make room so that Christ takes over every aspect of your life. Now, he is praying for us to be strengthened by the Spirit to do that because it doesn't come naturally, does it? I don't like it when people come into my house and start touching stuff. And he's saying he wants Jesus to come into your will, your emotions, your motivations, and he wants Christ to take over all of it. And he's saying that's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. But guess what? It is possible. It is possible. Otherwise, he wouldn't be praying it, but he knows that we need help to do it. And so he's confronting us with something, church. He, he's saying to us, he says, where does Christ reside in your life today, in your heart and mind today? Has he taken up residence? Are there par parts and portions of your life that you keep segregated and closed off to Christ? He says, no, 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 no. It can't be so. His request is this. God empower believers through the Holy Spirit to make Christ the center of their lives. And it's that last little phrase, through faith, that makes this point all the more clear. You say, why does that little phrase make it all the more clear? Because in order to have Christ take up residence, it is an act of faith. That word for faith is, is referencing the trust it takes, the ultimate dependence it takes, that it will be you looking to Christ, me looking to Christ and saying, no, 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 not only does he have the right to every part of my life, but I need him in every part of my life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you need Christ in every part of your life, that his, his power and his grace must inhabit everything that you say and do. Paul would say it this way when he wrote to the Galatians church. He said this, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul took this prayer to heart. He says it's been the driving force of my life. 
I live by faith in the Son of God, not faith in my job, not faith in my relationships. Those things don't take up residency. It's not my relationships that drive my will, my mind, and my emotions. It's not my desire for money that drives those things. It's not my desire for security. It's not stability. It's, it's Christ. And so he says, I'm praying this for you, church in Ephesus. Church, you want to know how to pray for yourself? You want to know how to pray for your children? You want to know how to pray for one another? I think this is a good place to start. Lord, would you empower us to be strengthened by your spirit to make Christ the center of our lives? Now from that request, he moves on to another one, but before he does, he first has to make another declaration. Look at the declaration that he makes at the end of verse 17. That you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. Before he says the next thing that I pray for you, I want to make a declaration about who you are. Because as I say that, that I want Christ to dwell in your hearts, you might not realize the, the security and the stability that you already have. Instead, look at what he says here. He says that we, as the people of God, are rooted and grounded already in love. He uses these two metaphors, one agricultural, one architectural, to show us who we already are and what our position is, what our condition is. What he says to us in this declaration is, church, before I move on, while I'm praying these things, and it might kind of shake you for a little bit, know, though, that because of God's love for you, you are eternally stable and secure because of God's love for you. Before I pray anything else, what I don't want you to forget is that because God has already loved you, you are stable and you are secure. You are rooted and grounded in love, but it's not your love for God. Let's make no mistake. It's God's love for you that has rooted and grounded you. And, and I love the imagery that he uses, church. Rooted and grounded. I want to show you two pictures that I think get at this. The first one I told you, he's using a word that's used within agriculture, and it refers to, to the roots of a tree, deep roots that have, that have come in. And when you have deep roots, like on, a, like on a day like we've had with the storms, right? If a tree doesn't have deep roots, if it's not grounded with, with deep roots, it can be blown over and tossed and turned aside. And he says, no, no, picture yourself because of God's love as having deep roots. You are grounded and you are secure. This other picture is the picture of the temple in Jerusalem. Do you see the size of that stone that he's standing next to? Those stones laid the foundation for the temple. And the word that he uses to talk about being rooted and grounded is a word that referred to the stones in a temple or a building in the ancient world. And you knew, I mean, those stones aren't moving. <laughs> They're not moving. That guy's not going to push those things. He says, that's who you are. You're stable and you're secure because of God's love for you. Now, there was a time, and there is for some people still, an instability and a lack of security in their lives. And it is a spiritually detrimental one because Paul told us back in Ephesians 2.1, he's already talked about how God's love makes you stable and secure. He said in verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work at the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were, we were at one time by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But then verse four says this, 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great, what? Love with which he loved us. What has he done, church? He's made us alive. Not because of what you did, but because of his grace. Paul says, I'm praying that Christ would take over every part of your life. But don't forget, though, if you have God the Father, you are stable and you're secure because of his love. I think Paul had in mind here Psalm 1. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night, and he will be like, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Paul is saying, here's my declaration. Don't forget it. You are secure. You have as your foundation God's love for you. But with all that being said, he continues. And he says, but there's still a way that I want to pray for you. A second request, and it's found in verse 18. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. There's that word again. To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, what's Paul doing here? Paul has just made a declaration that we are safe and secure because we have God's love. So, so what's his request? What's he doing? Do you see what he's doing? He now prays something. Yes, church, God the Father has loved you and saved you and redeemed you. But now his second request is this. He's praying, God, enable believers to comprehend the love they already have. This should put us back a little bit and, and, and remind us of something, that God absolutely loves us. But if Paul is having to pray that you and I would be able to comprehend God's love in Jesus Christ. What does that say about us? What it says about us is that while we can have something, we cannot fully comprehend or understand what it is that we have. And so he is asking God to literally give us strength, to, 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 to give strength to our weakened knees that we can know the love of Christ, which he says surpasses knowledge. Paul isn't saying that Christ's love is unknowable, is he? No, what he's saying is that you and I can never plumb the depths of the love of Christ and what it means for your life and for my life, but that we should ever keep pursuing that knowledge to really understand what it means to be loved by God through Jesus Christ. He says, listen, we all have an insufficiency and it is of utmost importance to your walk in the Lord that you would know day by day more deeply the depths of that love and how transformative it is. There's a very famous hymn 
It's got a, it's got a very interesting story that I, I can't get into this morning. But it's the hymn called The Love of God is Greater Far. And, and it simply goes like this, at least the, I'll read the first and the third verses. It says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bow down with care. God sent his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. And then the third verse says this, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made. All right, do you get the imagery there? Could we fill the entire ocean to the full with ink? Could we with, with all the resources fill it? And then it says, were the skies of parchment made? So the vast sky, if it were paper that we could write upon, and every stalk on earth a quill, every reed a quill, and then every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would literally drain the ocean dry, and nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This hymn writer was trying to capture in some small way what Paul writes here. We can't even fathom the magnitude of Christ's love and what it actually means for us but oh, would we pursue to know it. Oh, would we look into it deeply. Oh, would we have the knowledge of it because look at why Paul prays this, verse 19. He says, I pray this for you, that you would know his love, that you would be filled with the, the fullness of God. I want you to be filled with the, with the fullness of God. I want you to enter into the abundance of the life and relationship that you have been created in Christ to have. His request here in its fullness is this, God, enable believers to comprehend the love of Christ they already have so they can experience their full life in our God. Church, the implication is this, the fullness of your life in God, it is necessary to grow and to never stop growing in your knowledge of who he is. Knowing more of him, it changes things. Understanding his love, it changes things. You know, when Hannah and I were dating, I don't think I've ever shared this, and she didn't know I was going to share this today for good reason. Here we go. When, when we were dating, there was this one season in our relationship. No, I'm sorry. No, we weren't even dating. We weren't, that's, that's how the story begins. We were not dating. It was, we just met in the summer. We were getting to know one another. We were corresponding over, over emails because she was in a different town, and I was in Chicago, and we're, we're talking back and forth. And then she happens to come with her family to come visit Chicago, and so we decide to connect while, while she's there. And I think that we have a burgeoning friendship, right? It's growing. It's flourishing. I'm thinking this relationship could lead somewhere. And so I'm so excited to see her. And so the days that she's with us, we spend some time together and we're, we're there over the weekend. And for some reason, she just like won't give me the time of day. And I'm like, was I reading the emails wrong? Did I, did I misinterpret things here? And the reason why she would later say was that she was conflicted. She, she knew where this friendship was going. And she was like, I'm just, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how to respond at the time. Was, that, was it ready to go to that, that next level? And so she left. And, and, and they actually were driving back across the country. And so I know they weren't going to have access to email. This was back in the day, right? And so, 
so we weren't communicating at all. And I'm just like, I'm like, well, that was fun while it lasted. You know, good friendship. She doesn't, she doesn't care about me. You know, she'll move back there and we'll never see each other again kind of a thing. And then something happened. All of a sudden, before she even got back to her home, a letter in the mail arrived for little old David Wachnicki from Hannah. Oh, man. I was, I didn't know what to think. I thought it was a fun while it lasted, but see you later, guy. You know, was that what it was going to be? No, instead, she professed her great love for me and flower. No, she didn't do that. But it was just, it was this letter that she wrote just saying how much she appreciated our friendship, how glad she was to spend some time together, and how she couldn't wait to see each other again when I got back in town. Now, do you think that knowledge changed things for me? In the absence of knowing uh, how she felt and what she thought about me, I, I thought, well, this relationship is done. But when I got that letter, when I received that, I mean, it was, you know, laser focused. I was like, all right, let's, let's lock this thing down. <laughs> she didn't know that, did I? <laughs> um, the knowledge that I received from her because of what was in that letter, it changed things for me. I'm here to tell you that Paul says, listen, the more you know of Christ and his love for you, the more you will experience, do you see what he literally says? The fullness of what? God. You and I were created to be in relationship with him. And he says, the more you explore and know how he has loved you and what his love for you looks like, the more your life will be conformed to his image. Paul got this when he wrote to the church in Corinth, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says. Not my love for Christ, but his love for me. It literally controls me. When John would write to the church in 1 John, he says this. He says, listen, we love because he what? First loved us. Knowing of his love changes everything. It's only through Christ's love, the Bible says, that we can love others. It's only through his love that we can see ourselves rightly. You are today, church, loved by God through Jesus Christ. And nothing you can do can change his love for you. Do you believe that? Some days, yeah. It's really easy to believe that. Some days it can be hard. That's why he prays what he prays. And it's only through his love that we can ultimately love God. Church, mark this verse down because when we get to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul is going to say these words. Therefore, be imitators of God. And you might say, how can someone like me be an imitator of God? The next words say it. As what? beloved children. Because you have been loved by God, you can actually manifest the character, the nature, the qualities of God to the world because you first were loved. That is good news. That is great news. This is how Paul prays. Enable them to know your love. Enable them to be strengthened to have Christ take up residence. Church, Tim Keller said this, and I think this is really profound. When you look at all of Paul's prayers in the New Testament, Tim Keller says this, it's remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayer for his friends contained no appeals for the changing in their circumstances. It is certain that they lived in the midst of many dangers and hardships. 
They face persecution, death from disease, oppression by powerful forces, and separation from loved ones. Yet in all of Paul's prayers, you see not one petition for a better emperor, for protection from marauding armies, or even for bread for their next meal. Paul does not pray for the goods we would usually have near the top of our prayer requests. It's not to say that we can't pray for those things, but when he prays for the church, he says, you know what you need every day? You need to have Christ reign over every part of your life. You need to know his love for you. And then he closes out his prayer and he says this. He makes one final declaration and it's found in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work in us. Present tense. Paul says, the first declaration I made to you was that we come to a God who has authority over all things. I close my prayer for you by telling you that the God we come to is the God who has the power to do all things. Isn't this glorious that when we come to our God, we're making a request to a God who has the power and the ability to grant the requests that we ask of him. The final declaration that Paul prays is that God's power already in us can accomplish anything we need and more. Did you know that? His power that is already in us can strengthen us so that Christ rules every portion of our hearts. His power in us can grow us. You might say, I'm not that much of a book person. It doesn't matter. I'm not much of a thinker. It doesn't matter. I struggle with embracing love. It doesn't matter because God's power is at work within you and it can do far beyond all that you ask or think. In fact, Paul literally invents a Greek word here to explain the magnitude of his power. When he says that he can do beyond all that we ask or think, this is a word that he puts together a bunch of Greek words to display that the God that we come to in prayer, because of the power he already is at work within us, can do all that we ask or think. And so I want you to consider, are you asking him today? Have you ever prayed this prayer? Have you ever invited Christ by the Spirit Have you ever asked the Spirit to strengthen you so that all of your life, your very, the center, the thing that operates your life would be Christ on the throne of your heart? Have you ever prayed that for yourself? Have you ever prayed that for others? Have you ever prayed that you would know more of the love of Christ? Listen, if you struggle with anger, if you're impatient, if you're not gentle, if you struggle with self-control, the answer to those things in first and foremost knowing the love of Jesus Christ, what he has actually done for you, how much he has loved you. Because so often when we manifest impatience, when we manifest a lack of self-control, we're saying, I need something. When Christ says, you have already all that you need in me. And the beautiful thing that Paul closes with in this is all that we have to do is ask. In fact, look at the very last verse. He says, to him that is God the Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Church, it's there in your notes. Let me close with this. 
God desires to display his glory through Christ in you. So ask with boldness. God the Father wants nothing more than to make his majesty and his glory known. That's what that verse is saying. And he says he does it through the church. And as Christ Jesus works in us, as Christ takes over hearts, as Christ's love manifests it in our lives, his glory is on display. And so let us ask him with boldness. Let me pray for us, shall I? Let's go to the Lord. And so, Lord, we come in light of your word, you showing us clearly and without fail by your inspired word, Lord, what it would look like to pray for one another through what Paul does here. And so, Lord, I ask for us, I ask for Valley Center Community Church that, Lord, you would, through your spirit, empower us Empower us in such a way, Lord, that Christ would dwell in all of our hearts. That the world would see us as a people who are different because we know and believe that we are new creations in Christ. And so Christ becomes the driving force of everything that we say and do. There's not one thought, there's not one desire, there's not one, Lord, will within us that is controlled any longer by the sinful nature, Lord, but is fully given over to Christ. Spirit, would you help us let Christ reside? And then would you empower us to truly know as a church, as individuals, what it means to be loved by Christ? To know that perfect love casts out fear so that when we are afraid, when we give in to sin, Lord, that is not your love for us controlling us, but that is something else. But why should it? How can it? Because we are recipients of your love. And so, Lord, may we be a place and a people, may we be a church where your glory is on display because in us as the new people of God, the world sees what it looks like to be transformed through the gospel. And Lord, may not one of our hearts ever question or doubt what you can do. Because Father, you can do beyond all that we ask or think. And the power for all that we ask or think, Lord, you've already given to us. And so it is in Christ's name that we ask. And all God's people said, amen and amen.